0: You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles.
1: I find a lot of wisdom that comes from your show. You interview different people and I know you just do an overall good job and you're a blessing to recovery in general. So I want to make that very clear for the record that I love the movement that you have what you're doing, you're saving lives and you're educating and informing people. I think that's important.
0: I want to thank my friends at Recovery Survey for giving me the opportunity to talk to them about about my recovery journey.
1: Thank you for having me on uh, the new podcast that you just developed, which is unbelievable, Recovery Survey podcast. I really appreciate what you're doing and, and been doing and continue
0: doing. I'm super pumped about today's guest. His name is Blake Cohen. He is the co founder of Next Level Recovery Associates. He's a certified life coach. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology and he's working on a master's degree. He's also the author of the best selling book, I Love You More Short Stories of Addiction, Recovery, and Loss from the Family's Perspective. Welcome to the show, Blake.
1: I'm Blake Cohen. I am a certified addictions professional and I am in recovery since 2012.
0: Welcome to the show, Blake.
1: Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. You had mentioned talking about the family involvement aspect of recovery. Would you mind going into a little bit more detail and explaining what exactly you were talking about?
1: Yeah. So, it honestly started for me. Um, and this isn't like something that I've created. You know what I mean? It's pretty well known. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of treatment centers or support groups really place enough focus on family systems and how important involving the family in somebody's recovery is. And the realization really started for me when I was in treatment, and this is in 2000, like early 2013, and I was there for a few weeks already, and my dad basically called me and really out of character for him, essentially said, good luck finding your way home from treatment. We want nothing to do with you. You're a piece of shit, were his words. And that was it. And he hung up on me and didn't talk to me. And I didn't take it the way that I did in the past, I would say, where I would just be like, oh, he has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what's going on. I took it as like, wow, my dad is really that hurt. My family's really that hurt. They must be really upset if they're willing to write off one of their sons and just act like you don't exist. Good luck. Good luck finding your way home. We want nothing to do with you. And it helped me realize how much my addiction was damaging my family and how much of an effect my actions that for all of those years, of us being selfish and self-centered and really thinking about myself and always having the thought in the back of my mind of, why does anybody else care? Like, nobody could actually care that I'm doing this because it's really only affecting me and it doesn't affect anybody else. So what do they care if I'm doing this? And that just shows you that the way that I thought thinking worked. I thought everybody was as selfish and self-centered as I was. But in reality, we we have people who love us, and we have people that we love, and we care deeply about them. And if they're hurting themselves and they're going down this this downward spiral, it hurts us just as much. And we feel very hopeless, and we feel lost, and we feel like we don't know what to do to be able to help that person. I imagine that's where my family was, and then I, I got myself on track and got home from treatment and got sober, and you know began working in the field of substance abuse treatment. I had my degree, my bachelor's in psych at that point and decided I want to work in mental health and started in straight mental health and then transitioned over to substance abuse treatment and worked in an admissions department as the director of admissions. And that's where I really got my foothold in working with families and being able to guide families through the process of, of trying to help their loved one and who either wants help or sometimes doesn't want help, or how to hold boundaries, how to uh, communicate properly. Then I went back to school and became a certified addictions professional, which in the state of Florida is an, an addictions counselor, essentially. And did that, you know, took some time to, to takes about a couple years to do that. And really just dove headfirst into this whole family involvement piece man it just it has such a huge effect on the person when they're returning home if the family has worked on themselves and not only that the family deserves their own help too i you know i always think about it like if you go to treatments okay so you get to do all of these things you know i'll say we because i'm one of them we get to do all these terrible things. We get to do all these things that, that unfortunately, a substance use disorder causes a person to do to support their habit. And then we get to go to treatment. We get to be in some treatment center where we do therapy 24/7, and we're we're working on ourselves. We're being well fed, while our family sits at home and stews and has to clean up our mess, and they don't get the help that they need. So family can get the help that they need though. And family can get, get involved and they often don't realize that they should get involved in some type of support group or, or go to therapy or go to, go to a family coach, get educated on the disease of addiction and they can actually better themselves, which is also is going to better the chances of the person struggling when they return home.
0: Man, I, I loved what you touched on though about, because I, I believe that self-centeredness is at the core of, of my disease and, you know, when I was using, I didn't ever think about how it affected other people, how it affected my family. And I can remember when I first got clean, I was starting to to mend those relationships with, with family. And I was talking with my mom, and I don't remember exactly how far along I was, but I'd only been clean a couple of months. And, you know, we were having like a deep heart to heart, and she was like, you know, I used to stay up at night and worry about you. Like I didn't know the specifics of what you were doing, but I knew mm. that you weren't in a good place and I knew that you were in danger. And so, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and say a prayer for you, or I'd just wake up and just, I, I had this constant worry and hearing that from my mom, man, it just, it broke me. Cause I was like, man, I never uh. considered the, my drug use was affecting anybody else except me because I was so self-centered that I couldn't see beyond myself. So I love that you're touching on this, this whole thing about we have to get the family involved because it affects everyone in our lives. It doesn't just affect the person that's using.
1: Yeah, man. It's, it definitely is a massive blow to the gut when you realize how much you're affecting your family and, I don't know. I don't know about you. I I know my family tried to help me a few times prior to the time I actually got better, but I always thought they were sort of acting in a sense, where like they were upset, but they weren't really that upset. They were just upset because they felt like they had to be, and it just never really felt real to me until they were really willing to just say like, "Bye," you know, "We're we're done with you." I don't know. It's it is kind of a real blow to the gut, man, and it, it. it also, like you said, it leveled me also where like, I remember just breaking down crying and part of that too, was that the reason my dad made that call was because he, they found out like all the other stuff that I was doing that go along with addiction, you know, the substance abuse part where you're actually using the substances, isn't the worst part of addiction. The, The behaviors that go around it and the stuff that you do to support your habit and the, the behaviors that even are further from just supporting your habit, the things that you do just to fill that empty void that's in us that because we hate ourselves, we'll do anything to just not feel. And just all the other things, the girls, the, you know, whatever it was I was going after, my family found out everything I was up to. It's like they were detectives and just like corroborated evidence with everybody that knew me and just like painted a picture of who I was. And I always at night, became that person or during the day when I had to, like when I was feeling sick, I became like this dark person and then wear a mask for everybody else. And I always felt on the inside, like that dark person was the real me. And I really hope that nobody ever finds out. And when they did, it just like, it made that dark person come to light. Like that was the real me now. And everybody knows it. And like, my cover's been blown and I'm I'm this terrible person is how I really felt at the time. And I just, I don't know, man, I blew the lid off, off my whole, my whole substance abuse history and everything. I just was like, I was always willing to do whatever it took to stop.
0: Yeah, man. I, I think a lot of it has to do with that shame and guilt that we feel. And so we try to hide those things from other people. And we try, it's almost like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, and, I don't want other people to see all these things that I'm doing. And just because of that shame, like that almost kind of drives me deeper into my addiction and, and I have to use more to continue to cover those feelings. And man, it's just, it's a nasty spiral.
1: Oh, for sure. And the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing is like a classic. That's so true. It's exactly what it is. And we just have to, I don't know. I, I learned not too long ago. It's when you're living that double life, You can't possibly be in line with your core values you can't possibly like the person that you really are is more likely the good person that you're trying to be your brain has been hijacked by this addiction so you sort of also have to on the other side to do all these things to support your habit and you don't want to feel and you're covering up shame and trauma of everything that you're doing but you want to be this good person but your mind and your body won't allow you to be because you're addicted. So it just sort of creates this divide within us where we start to hate ourselves because we're so far from our, our set of core values that we were raised on and that we want to live by. But we're so far from it. We're doing all of these things that are just the opposite of what we know we should be doing.
0: So what kind of stuff do you guys do with the family members of people that are in treatment to help them heal and also to be able to help the person that's in treatment?
1: Yeah, so what what we do as an organization, my partner, so I've worked in the field now of substance abuse for about seven years, and I've worked for a few different treatment centers, done a few different things, and have always on the side, and as part of my job, done interventions, and have helped coach families on the side of how to cope with, with their loved one's addiction, and at the same time, also mentored, coached people who are in in recovery. Also then separate from that is my personal recovery program of where, you know, sponsor and do that stuff with my 12-step program. But that's separate from work. So then my partner and I, we started Next Level Recovery Associates. And the two main things that we do is interventions. So a family member will reach out to us or a facility that refers to us and will say, I really, my, my loved one needs help so badly, but they're not willing to go, what do we do? And that's where we come in. And we're not the interventionists that just say, okay, uh, pass and we'll, we'll show up and we'll get the person to go. It's for us, it's a much more serious and much more long-term model. What we do is basically, uh, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. We wanna get to know the loved one who's struggling really well, through the other family members first, so we understand how to best talk to them, what they're struggling with the most. We want to know their mental health history, if they have a history of trauma. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. And then we really plan a, a loving intervention. So it's not the old school model of like, hey, dude, you're, you're screwing everybody up. Like, what are you doing? This is terrible, a shaming style intervention. It's more of a love-based approach where we have the family members do most of the talking and we facilitate the conversation. And we help the person get it to treatment. And then once they're in treatment, we actually stay involved the whole time. We stay in touch with the family. We help prepare the family for what to expect when the person comes home. And we stay involved for, for up to a year with these families, constantly checking in, answering any questions they may have, and guiding them through the aftercare process, what to expect, You know, there's so many things that a family can do when their loved one comes home that really makes their loved one just feel like, oh, God, there's no point to this. And they don't even – family doesn't even mean to do it. So, like, accusing somebody if they're tired, but then because of your history and your trauma that you went through of seeing them using substances, if they're just tired, but you're like, oh, God, there must be high again. Why is he falling asleep on the couch? And accusing them really puts a person – Uh, into the corner, and they just feel like this is never going to get better. So we really try to help create a supportive environment at home while the family is able to hold healthy boundaries. And this sort of bleeds into our family coaching piece, too. While the loved one is in treatment, we also can be hired to just do coaching. So a lot of treatment centers refer to us because treatment centers have family programs oftentimes, or they'll offer a family session maybe once a week with a therapist, but they need a little bit more of a hands-on approach. So we'll be able to come in because of the whole COVID situation. We've been doing this a lot on FaceTime or Zoom, but we'll even go as far as helping. We'll do a tour of the house, uh, make sure everything in the house is sort of recovery friendly. There's no extra bottles laying around. We'll help search the bedroom. Um, We've gone as far as reorganizing somebody's patio. This kid used to use only on the patio. And it sort of became like his drug area. So we wanted to reduce the possibility of triggers. So we, we reorganized it and made like a Zen, you know, a Zen area outside, which was great. Then we help them decide on the boundaries that they want to uphold when the person comes home, sort of like make a contract that like, this is what our expectations are. And we make sure that they're all reasonable. We help them to learn better communication skills. So if they have a concern, how to express their concern without it being like, in an accusing way. And then we also help guide them through their resentments and guide them through their issues. And a lot of times that means working hand in hand with a therapist. We'll make recommendations for therapy. And then with the person who's struggling with the addiction, like once they return home from treatment or we have some clients who never went to treatment, they just, they need some extra support and have just no idea what to do. And typically, those people are very opposed to going to support groups like AA or NA or Smart Recovery. They're typically opposed to that at first. So our job really is to get them a basic understanding of addiction, to help hold them accountable, set basic benchmarks of things that they should be doing, how to stop, make recommendations if we feel like, look, this isn't working, you got to go to treatment, and make sure that they're medically safe before doing any of this stuff too. And then also hopefully getting them on board and getting them a little more open to the idea of going to community support groups so that they no longer have to rely on a coach like us and they can build their own support network.
0: I think it's important, the part you're talking about, the whole family aspect, because I know for my family, they had a lot of questions and I think they struggled a lot because like my mom's a really sweet lady and she's the kind of person, I would categorize her as an enabler because she's just... Just like really kind and giving, and really easy to manipulate. You know that that sounds kind of messed up, but yeah. as an addict, like we know how to pull strings and how to how to get what we want. And then I think another thing is like, I think my parents really struggled with the disease concept, and they they kind of had the mindset of like, well, why can't you just stop? And they didn't understand like it's more that it goes way beyond just the substance use like there's so much more involved than that like if i could just put it down i would have done that a long time ago
1: yeah i mean that's such a great point that's such a good way of putting it and a lot of people struggle with that disease concept because they don't it's a disease you can't see it's not like they have like gangrene on their arm on your arm you know and they can see like okay that's a disease like something's wrong there it's it's they see your mouth saying, you know, your mouth is the one line, even though it's the addiction talking, it's your mouth doing the talking. And they see you, your body doing these behaviors. They see you doing the these substances and doing whatever it takes to get them. And they don't realize that it's like you're sort of just a like a puppet at that point and the addiction's controlling you. Oftentimes with families, the first piece, and like this really is my favorite part, the first piece of working with families is just purely just educating them on, in a very basic way, of like what's happening in the brain, of like why is this happening, what's going on, what systems have been hijacked, and helping them understand it more like an allergy than it is type of moral failing or lack of willpower.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely important to help the people that are in your life understand what you're struggling with and man, just the obsession and compulsion and just all the things. You know, you'd mentioned triggers about reorganizing the guy's patio so that he wasn't triggered by those same surroundings. Like, I think it's so important that other people in our lives realize that there's so many things, there's so much more involved and there's so many other aspects to it. And it really can be a pretty complicated thing. Yeah. At least we, at least we make it complicated.
1: We definitely make the recovery process complicated for sure. You know, the biggest example that I always provide to families is, you know, you you often have times like you have to compare to something that they've gone through or that they understand. So like the way that I'll, I'll explain to them of how habit works in the brain is let's say every night before bed, they make themselves a chocolate milk. Well, chocolate Spikes your dopamine in your system. So, if every night you're doing this for two weeks, three weeks, a month, and then you run out of chocolate syrup at night, your body still is going to want that chocolate syrup. You're not going to go like steal from your grandmother for some chocolate syrup, but you're still going to feel that. You're going to be like, I just wish I could have some chocolate milk right now. So, obviously, that's a small dopamine spike that the chocolate provides. Imagine a much larger one. That your body has become so used to that it's actually shut off its own ability to produce dopamine because there's such high spikes of dopamine coming in from these drugs. So your body becomes reliant on it based on these different triggers. Sometimes it's for people, it's just waking up. Sometimes it's after you eat, it's, you know, whatever it may be, like these, these little triggers that people see that they associate their brain automatically associates with drug use. And it's it creates this craving in their head for this dopamine spike. And it becomes like a, a survival technique almost. I mean to me, like when you're an addiction, it's you're just it's a fight or flight mechanism all the time.
0: Yeah, and I think when you first get clean because your body's so accustomed to the substances, I think it's pretty common for us to go through a, a phase of depression and we definitely go through this phase of like just blah.
1: Yeah, and then it's followed up by the total opposite. Like, you know, we always talk about the pink cloud. You go through in the beginning like this weird phase of depression because your brain's supply of chemicals that are that are reward chemicals have been taken away, and your brain's not producing it anymore. You go through this like blah period, and, and families, again, like they don't understand that. Like They don't understand why you're so depressed. Like, come on, just go outside. Why don't you go to the gym? Why don't you do this? Like, you could feel better. Just eat healthy, drink water. You know, they, they make these suggestions that you're just, you almost want to be like, F you. Oh, you, don't, you don't get it. And then we go through the opposite of where we're on this pink cloud and we're feeling great and life is beautiful and like birds are chirping everywhere we're going. And and that's because your brain's trying to regulate. So then it, it realizes like, oh, crap, we're not producing dopamine at all. Like, let's produce hardcore dopamine, serotonin, whatever it may be, and it goes way over. And then it realizes, okay, there's too much dopamine, so then we crash again, and we go up and down this roller coaster for like the first year of recovery.
0: That and then I think one of the other – I'm only speaking from personal experience, but one of the other things that was really challenging, especially in the beginning, was now that I'm not using – and i'm not masking all those feelings now all of a sudden i'm feeling all these emotions that i'm not familiar with i'm feeling all these things that i haven't felt in years and it's really overwhelming
1: it's a lot so let me ask you like how how do you deal with that like how did you deal with that whole first year and dealing with all these emotions like what was your your way of getting through it
0: it was difficult i started riding my bike a lot like anytime Anytime I felt overwhelmed or angry or whatever the feeling was, because for the first probably, I don't know, I'd say probably five or six months, I didn't have a job, so I had, I had a whole lot of free time. So I would ride my bike a lot, and that would help me clear my head. I'd just pop in my headphones, put on some music, and just ride for miles and miles and miles. I started reading a lot. I just started picking up as many hobbies as I could to try to, to fill that free time because my home group only has five meetings a week. So that's five hours out of the week It's like, man, I got to find something productive yeah. to do to help fill some of this time. So I was doing bike riding, reading, started doing woodworking, like anything I could come up with to help me be doing something positive to distract me, but also to, to, just to be doing something where I wasn't constantly thinking about wanting to use and you know, all those things. So yeah, that's what I did.
1: Yeah. And that's so like, it's just so important. I feel like I did the same thing where I don't know, man, you, you and I were talking about my resume, my resume like prior to us hopping on here. And I feel like there's a lot on there and that I've done a lot, but it was sort of out of a necessity to keep my mind busy and it continued. It was just sort of a new habit I built of staying busy. And this concept of like, in order to survive with my addiction, I need to constantly be making personal, spiritual, and professional progress in my life. And there are great benefits that come from that outside of just surviving my addiction it's like all of a sudden I have a degrees, I have like this job, I have a book, I have all these things that I've done that were really intended to fill my time, but ended up really improving my life drastically and have improved my understanding, have helped me really become more empathetic for others and just created a total different, totally different like sense of understanding of different recovery paths and ways to fill our time that are that really help us find like a sense of progress and ultimately I think what all of that gives us is a sense of self-esteem and helps us find our identity in the end so like riding a bike and doing woodwork and doing all these things and learning new abilities makes us feel confident with ourselves and we no longer feel like we're just wasting away or, or wasting our time for me I no longer hated myself because I felt like I had a sense of identity that was given to me by the program, by, by going to meetings, by the guys making suggestions, plus the personal and spiritual growth that comes along with all of this stuff. Like my favorite thing that was told to me early on that I just, it just always stuck with me was a, the move a muscle, change a thought phrase. And that that's like when you get those cravings or get those thoughts, just do something. Don't just sit and ruminate because we'll just, we have like this amazing ability to just make a huge problem out of nothing. And if we move a muscle and if we go do something, get our mind off of it, it really clears our mind and we can think a lot clearer. I mean, I don't know about you, man. I, I can like if I'm sitting by myself all day in my apartment. And my wife is like out doing something and I'm just there alone by myself all day. I can I can literally create an argument in my head about like a fake argument with somebody that never even happened, just anticipating a conversation and really get fired up about it. That makes no sense. And like I have to really like move a muscle and change my thought until like I'm back thinking of reality, and going like, wow, well that argument never happened. What am I even upset about?
0: Absolutely, man. I, I definitely do that as well. Like and I, I think that for me a lot of it is I have to remember to stay present in the moment and I can't allow myself to start future tripping and thinking about all these different things that could happen and you know, putting expectations on things because one of the things that I've learned is that, that by putting expectations on someone, I'm setting myself up for resentment because nobody ever seems to live up to these expectations that I have in my head because they're so unrealistic. And I can definitely relate to what you're talking about about making small things into just massive problems. Like I can I can overcomplicate anything.
1: Yeah. And expectations like that is a conversation that can go on forever, bro. Like that is that is something that all of us place and even family members, I've noticed, place massive expectations on their loved ones coming home from treatment. And a lot of their resentment is based on expectations of where their kid should have been or their husband should have been or the way that they should have been as a father and they're not really based in reality they're just sort of these unattainable expectations that aren't fair to the other person and then we do them as well of like we we come home from treatment and expect our family to just get off of our back and not be not be upset anymore we just spent 90 days in treatment i'm fine leave me alone don't don't bother me anymore and it's just not that's just not how this works it's not reality family also has the other side where they they come home and they expect you to return home from treatment after 90 days and be perfect. And anything that goes wrong, they're like, Oh, what did you even do for 90 days? How are you not better? Why are you still acting this way? Why are you still blowing up? And so those are the things that like we really as family coaches have to try to help manage and really level those expectations or remove expectations and really learn to just go with the flow and stay in the moment and not be emotionally reactive to everything that's going on, to really try to understand and communicate better. I mean, I, we had situations with families where they go one of two ways. So like a perfect example is, again, like a guy falling asleep on the couch after a long day of work, but the family is triggered by that. And they see, Wait, he used to do this when he was drinking. Oh my God, is he drinking again? And they've panicked and they've accused them. You're drinking again. I, I know this is your pattern. I know what's going on. And it causes this huge blow up that could actually result in the person drinking again. Not that it's anybody else's fault, but maybe they're not strong enough in their recovery yet. And they feel like no matter what they do, they can never do the right thing. And their family is just like, no matter what, they're never going to trust them again. This is pointless. I might as well just be drinking. Or they can, you know, they can cope with it well and they can they can still have a big blow up, but then end up being OK. Then we've seen the other side of it where families have had the same exact situation pretty much, whether it's drinking or substance abuse, like with other substances, and the family communicates properly, just says, hey, noticed you were falling asleep on the couch. I don't want to accuse you of anything. I'm not trying to go there. I just, it creates a lot of fear in me. So I just, I just wanted some reassurance from you of, is everything okay? Are you all right? Is there anything I can do? And have a real conversation about their fears and concerns, and help them understand. Like, yeah, I, this used to happen when you were drinking, so it just—it's still like in me. I still get nervous. I, I hope that's okay. I hope you understand that. I just—I just need to be reassured that you're okay. And I've seen that go really well, and have a totally different result. So it's really about how we approach it, the expectations we have, and the type of communication that we participate in.
0: You'd mentioned earlier that you wrote a book. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, man, that's been like one of the coolest experiences of my life. So it starts with, I had these like, you know, I kind of got a little bit into like the self-help stuff for a while in my recovery. Like I was like reading a lot of books and watching a lot of Tony Robbins videos. And they were all talking about creating these like vision boards and instead I created like a index cards with goals on it that I wanted to accomplish. And one of them was become a best selling author. And I was writing blogs at this time and I was like, I don't know, it sat on my desk for like two years. And then I was in this weird transition period between jobs and really feeling like a sense of being lost. And I decided I was looking at that that card. I'm like, you know what? It's I'm gonna start writing. Like I'll never become a best selling author if I don't actually write the book. So what I decided to write about, well, first of all, I was using the idea of creativity of writing a book and being creative as a way to to cope with my emotions in a healthy way, which ended up being like this huge surge of just self-esteem. Just finishing a book. I don't care if nobody ever read it. Finishing a book is like the greatest feeling (laughs) personally. And what I decided to do with the book was not write about my life um, or my history. It wasn't a memoir. It's nothing like that. My story is just not that interesting to put in a book. And I decided to write more about family systems. And the way that I realized that people learn is through emotion. So you can give me a you could give a speech and speak in the most monotone voice and give me all of this great information. And I can walk out of there. I'm not going to remember a single thing. But if you make me feel some type of way during that speech, I'm going to remember those feelings. I'm going to remember what you said if there's a feeling attached to it. So the book is called I Love You More. And the intention is to educate people through short stories. And they're fictional stories of three different families that are very true to life that offer perspective of what it's like to be in a mother's shoes, a father, a husband, a sibling, a child. Or the substance user themselves, what it's like to live a day in their lives of while the family's being affected by addiction at different stages of addictions, like early recovery, active addiction, and then post-mortem, actually, where where this is it follows the last story follows a mother whose daughter passed away four months prior from an overdose, and what it's like living in their shoes. And they're all very true to life. Um, it's sort of a mix of the different families I've worked with. Very simple, easy to read. I wanted to make it like as fast as a read as possible. Nothing too crazy, but paints a good picture. And the coolest part was, man, is that like a month after I released it, it was on a bunch of best-selling lists on Amazon, and it's hit number one a couple times in a few different categories on Amazon, and it's just been such a cool journey. The book is also, um, it has messages from me to the substance abuser, messages from me to families. And then there's actually a chapter written by my dad about his experience and his his recommendations for how he dealt with, with my substance abuse. And then at the very end, I partnered with a psychologist to come up with discussion questions for each story. So you can use it to facilitate conversation. You can read a story in like a 25 minutes, 25 to 30 minutes, and then use the other, let's say if it's an hour group, to have a conversation about that that story and facilitate a conversation. So it's it's been awesome, man. It's, it's still on a few, like in the top 100 bestsellers, less than a few categories, you know, over a year later. And it's just, it's been such a cool journey.
0: That's really awesome, man. I'm definitely going to have to check that book out.
1: You'll blow right through it, man. It's like an hour, maybe an hour, hour, 10 minute read. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. It's been cool. The only negative reviews I've gotten so far, and there are a few, not, not many, fortunately, but there, there are a few and they're all say the same thing that it's too short or that it's not gritty enough and it's not close enough to addiction, which is kind of crazy because there's, you know, somebody gets raped in there. There's uh, talking about death. I mean, it's pretty gritty. Um, but I, I, know I didn't want to go too far, but that also speaks to the person who reviewed, you know, it just shows you how, how bad their situation must have been with their loved one, that they felt that this book that's pretty gritty, wasn't gritty enough. So it's an easy read and it's meant for anybody from, from teenagers to adults.
0: Do you have any plans to write more books in the future? Um, that's a good question. I, I
1: definitely want to. Feeling a little busy at the moment, you know. I we just started this company. My partner and I have been doing these things separate for a very long time. Then we just kind of formally created an organization in March, Next Level Recovery Associates. And I happened to in March also started a master's program. So I'm a little bit swamped at the moment. There's really not much free time. But I I have actually started writing a, a second book that's more of just like a personal project. It's not meant to be educational in any way, it's just me having some fun and writing a sort of like a sarcastic memoir that's filled with total BS. You know, like I said, my story is not that interesting. So I'm kind of making like a, I want to write like a joke of a, of a memoir where it's sort of poking fun at memoirs that take their lives so seriously and sort of just have some fun with it. So I started writing that. I got a couple chapters down, but, you know, it's, it's going to take a while. I do have a hope to write a second follow-up to the, I love you more book, probably call it. I love you too. So I have a title. That's all I have so far. I do want to write some more of those and maybe make them directly geared towards kids, understanding their parents' addictions, vice versa. So I don't know. I'm sure I will in the future, but we'll see what
0: happens. Well, I'm excited to see what, what you do in the future, man. Is there anything that you'd like to say in closing?
1: If you are somebody who's in recovery or who's in early recovery or who's considering getting into recovery, just remember that you're, you're not alone in this, but you're also not alone in your pain and your suffering and that your family will probably do anything that they can to help you in most cases. So don't be afraid of asking them for help, but also recognize that they're struggling as well. So It's important for you to realize that. And if that's going to be something that motivates you, that you're not just affecting yourself, then I would really suggest getting better so that you can heal and that your family can heal.
0: So if the listeners want to find you, do you mind giving us your website and that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. So for the company, it's nextlevelrecoveryassociates.com. My personal website is blakeevancohen.com. And you can just find me on Instagram, which is I believe where you found me is it's at at Blake Evan C. And on LinkedIn.
0: Blake, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing about the family piece of recovery. Since recording this episode, I picked up your book and I just finished it. I thought it was extremely powerful and thought provoking. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you guys are looking for a book on the family aspect of recovery. Be sure to check out I Love You More. I'll have links to his website as well as the book, social media, all that will be in the show notes. Thank you again, Blake. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes. Hey guys, I wanted to let you know about an exciting new partnership with Broken Chains Apparel. They're a custom online shirt retailer that designs cool shirts for people in recovery. They want you to be proud of your recovery and wear it boldly. They're offering our listeners a 20% discount. All you have to do is use the promo code Recovery at checkout. Go grab your shirts today at BrokenChainsApparel.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at BrokenChainsApparel.